0: an outstanding and unforgettable story by Edgar Allan Poe, which keeps going and going through my head. Um, The Mask of the Red Death, which was published in 1842. And I'll link it with uh, this podcast. It's a two page story. And for anyone who hasn't read it, uh, or who needs a refresher, I am going to start this, uh, podcast by reading it out. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the madness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the past ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men and the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease were incidents of half an hour but prince prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious when his dominions were half depopulated he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his crenellated abbeys. Crenelated is a great word. Uh, this was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste, that is august with a lowercase a. A strong and lofty wall girded it, girdled it in, this wall had gates of iron the courtiers having entered brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts they resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within the abbey was amply provisioned lots of toilet paper With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisate—there's an improv troupe, apparently. There were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty with a capital B, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the red death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth months of, month of his seclusion that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand so that the view of the whole extant is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced, but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at the right and left in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor of which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, The color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of any of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro and depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly lit the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western, or back chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those, the faces for, you know, the faces of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was within this apartment also that there stood against the Western Wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that as each at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers uh, perforce ceased their evolutions. And there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang It was observed that the giddiest grew pale and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation but when the echoes had fully ceased a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly the musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion and then, after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and there were the same discord, disconcert, and Gah, Today, tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure he was not. He had directed in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great feat. And it was his own guiding taste, which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what had been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. Appointments, late for their appointments, apparently. Also, Hernani is Victor Hugo, uh, apparently, the reference there. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these the dreams writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, There strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then for a moment, all is still, and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays of the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery of Paul's. And to him whose foot falls on the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of Ebony, a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. Absolutely no social distancing. And the revel went whirlingly on, whirlingly, ugh, whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps that more of thought crept, which more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus too it happened, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence. There were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company, a buzz or murmur of horror and of disgust in an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such, I don't know if this was written with the idea of reading it aloud or, you know, somebody with proper elocution and shit could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now to deeply feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the cootinance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet, all this might have been endured, if not approved by the mad revelers around. But the murmur had gone so far, uh, the mummer, not the murmurs, but the mummer like a play actor, had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death. His vesture was dabbled in blood and his broad brow with all the features of his face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell on this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely, of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery?" seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who, at the moment, was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe, with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth a hand to seize him. So that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, to the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddened with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which most instantly followed, instantly afterward. Ugh. That's definitely not written to be read out loud. Sorry to disrupt the, uh, the flow there. But, uh, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the mummer whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the red death. he had come like a thief in the night and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood bedewed halls of their revel and died each in the despairing posture of his fall and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay and the flames of the tripods expired and darkness and decay and the Red Death held delimitable dominion over all. Obviously, this story is much on my mind because we are now in this age, this new era of a plague and something that a lot of people, uh, you know, America for one, has not had a thing like this really. Although uh, Poe wrote that story Uh, close to 200 years ago. It's also interesting to know for uh, anyone who, you know, uh, is into literature and horror that uh, Edgar Allan Poe actually died before the Civil War. Just as a marker of the time he lived in and some people are surprised that he was that long ago, but uh, he really was. And writing from uh, this shadowy time, really. This gothic thing that he did, the story. I just read was, as I said, published in 1842 and Frankenstein, which uh, really is the first science fiction story was published in 1818. So around that whole time and era, Uh, but obviously the quarantine parties are what has this on my mind, this idea of people reveling uh, in the midst of a plague of, you know, oh, it's all just something that affects poor people, it affects outsiders, it doesn't concern us. And these people closing themselves in and bolting the doors and sealing the whole place shut. Uh, The absurdity of this idea that you can just, you know, lock the doors and throw away the key and the plague will shrug and uh, go home, you know, find someone else's home. But, of course... The Red Death is here. The Red Death uh, is everywhere, and we can't see it. That is part of the terror. And although what he describes is a different sort of plague, uh, the thing we have now, uh, which is about to spike, today is the 22nd, and this whole thing. I mean, it is horrific and people don't realize or appreciate it, but they're going to. Um, uh, In California, we have a full lockdown now. And uh, even with that, uh, even with that and estimating, Gavin Newsom says and for whatever It's always something Uh, but There is an estimate that 56% of us in California uh, Will get it in the next six months something like that Uh, If possible, I would like to not be one of them. So you know And with or without internet, I have plenty of books. Uh, I don't have the means or the interest in throwing uh, any kind of masked ball. Uh, Although I have been working on a story for a while, which already uh, was going to have some serious references to this story and that idea of Also, similar to the Marquis de Sade's uh, uh, 120 Days of Sodom. I actually spoke about the city of Sodom and the biblical stuff a few uh, podcasts ago. But this idea of locking the world away and that anything goes, whatever horrors... You can conceive of with no accountability, with no repercussions from outside, uh, this sick fantasy that you're beyond reproach. Uh, And people just don't see, they really don't get it. And we're going to see soon not just these things and the rapid changes we've needed in society that all of a sudden are coming around. This idea that people need some kind of income, even if they're not, quote unquote, earning it. The fact that, you know, people are desperate and hungry and they, uh, you know, can't take care of themselves, which means that. We have a duty to take care of them. That's, as a matter of fact, there is, uh, from the Code of Hammurabi, one of my absolutely favorite quotes and just a uh, thing that was etched in stone 30,000 years ago for all intents and purposes. It's something like 6,000, but, you know, Thousands of years ago, someone took the time to put this in stone, that the first duty of the powerful is to protect the powerless, or that's not quite it. It's the, uh, it is the duty uh, to protect people without power from those who do. That's what uh, being a king, being a good leader is really about, is to use that power to help people who are not able to help themselves. And right now we've been living in a society and with a government, uh, that as the British, uh, phrase, uh, I'm all right, Jack, uh, kind of attitude. The other part of that, the unspoken, it's, uh, Uh, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, so fuck you, kinda, you know, (laughs) and, uh, it's that kind of attitude that has got us here. It's the, oh, well, they're not my kids thing. Uh, and people are going to see, uh, shortly really like it's untenable and it has been untenable, but now That, uh, just like the Red Death, you know, that there are these human, these very, very human horrors that have been kept out of the light and that most people either don't know about or don't want to know about, uh... They know, they know exactly what they're doing and they enjoy doing it. It's, without mincing words and just calling the thing what it is, it is terrorism. The idea of, you know, scary outsiders coming and doing crazy stuff and killing people, you know, and blowing up buildings. Uh, This is the... Like, I have never lived in a world without a war on terror. I was born in 1990. 9-11 happened when I was 10. And essentially, you know, for all of my life, uh, and... Possibly to some people listening to this, uh, you know, have been born after 9-11, have been born into this war on terror that continues to just, it's all just about hate mongering and feeding on fear The idea that word terror just means fear. This idea of a war on fear is just as ridiculous uh, as the idea of bolting all the doors and keeping the plague outside. It really is. And uh, this stuff about, you know snatching people from work en masse, just rounding people up on their kids' first day of school, the time they did this in Mississippi, it's, that's terrorism. There is no other descriptor for what that is. And the systems exist to support this kind of thing. For the moment, they still exist. And I know. And people just don't want to know. They want to keep on dancing. They want to keep, you know, uh, this is a great time to party because nobody else is on the beach, you know. Uh, And then they all go back from their spring break, uh, all these... Immortal young people, uh, (laughs) that is definitely inappropriately cheerful alarm sound, but all these immortal young people go home and they hug their grandparents or they, you know, cough on the plane and the thing spreads around. The... Like, they keep doing this stupid thing of, like, there's another case here. There's a, uh, wow, there are, like, 40 cases in Michigan or something. Like, wow, that that's pretty uh, crazy, you know. And now to weather and then to sports. Oh, wait, no sports because of the fucking plague. We're on the edge, we're right on the edge of this thing breaking open and all the excuses in the world, all of the lies of, you know, oh, there are plenty of ventilators. They're, you know, made of gold and they're better than the ventilators in any other country. Like this filthy, mendacious liar and all the support systems the support systems for this toxic creature and everything that spills out from it god i'm glad that i have this podcast now and i hope it means something to people to listen to it. I know there's the rambling, as always, and that I'm sort of figuring out what I want to say more consistently. Uh, The audio booking, obviously, is something I enjoy, and I kind of, maybe that'll be, not all the time, but that's definitely something I want to do more of uh, consistently with this, because it feels good for me to do i hope it's entertaining and it's certainly something to pass the time while we're all uh locked up here together and apart you know and the prisons are opening up they're taking out everybody who's You know, they're dragging heels, of course. Uh, but these changes that we've fought for, for so long, all of a sudden, it just becomes, uh, practical. It becomes stupid to not do it because you're endangering other people. You, uh, everybody who works in these facilities, uh... Is potentially in danger even if and maybe especially if they're uh, working with uh, children that are asymptomatic but possibly either uh, were infected with this or passed it on during close contact with uh, some of the uh, again, the creatures that, uh, staff these places, the, uh, the ones who rape children and, uh, they laugh about it. These are not, this is not something wild or made up like that chessboard thing in Hunters. These are things that have been reported. They, are stopping uh, girls from getting abortions, 15 year old girls, stuff like this. There's a report uh, that I heard about recently and I'm looking for the, uh, the actual thing, but I didn't have the stomach at the time to look at this. Uh, there's a recent report, I think from the Tacoma facility uh, of the sexual molestation of a three-year-old. These are inhuman things being done. There's no explanation. There's no, oh, well, you know, uh, this or this or that. Either you're okay with people who systemically rape children and likely uh, there are worse things going on by certain perspectives, like obviously that's unforgivable and uh, that even if there isn't a formal process for renouncing your soul or signing on a line in blood before or after they sign up to work in these places. This is something that these things challenge the idea of the soul or the idea people give too much goddamn credit of uh like oh you know well it must have been a mistake oh we'll just go and tell that bully that you want to talk things out you know that kind of advice uh and there is no reasoning with or being polite to uh you know those who thrive on hate you can't Reason with this mentality. There is no, you know, uh, it is possible that you could deprogram this kind of thing. I think it's possible, but uh, they're sure as shit not going to be talked around by someone saying, you know, uh, well, what if they were, uh, your kids or something? I, uh, they don't see them as human. They, uh, as actually, uh, I need to eat something. And I had a more cheerful thing to say about the red death you know, just something a bit lighter, but it doesn't belong in this podcast now. Uh, Because Pokemon (laughs) feels like that was half a century ago. The things between then and now. But, uh... There are things which are going to be coming to light that here's a note. This is a note to end on from uh, over the summer, just of this summer, 2019, that in... May, I think, May and June, when we saw the inside of the homestead facility in Florida just a little, uh, just briefly before they packed up all those kids and, you know, just drove them away uh, in the middle of the night and then shrugged and just, you know... uh like, nothing more was heard from them or about them. But we saw, you know, the thing that I knew, that I've known since the summer before when they started tearing children away from their parents, that these are concentration camps. And uh, the things in there, the stuff you can see around the edges if you know what you're looking for and you don't, give the benefit of the doubt to people, to these guards and these... They don't deserve the benefit of the doubt uh, at all. At all. And uh, the whole repulsive toxic system is set up without accountability by intent. And one of the things that disturbed me when that came to light, uh, and the thing about they're not giving showers or soap or basic, you know, human, anything in these places, Uh, One thing that really struck me was in watching The Young Turks, which is excellent, and you should be uh, if you aren't. Uh, I think it's tyt.com slash go uh, to support them, and everybody should if you can. Uh, But Cenk Uger, who is the founder of this, Uh, And if you don't know, you know, he's someone who doesn't pull punches and has, you know, a pretty uh, strong sense of the way things are and the way people are. Uh, He was shocked by the thing about no soap and no uh, that stuff. And that kind of rattled me a bit because I would have thought that he and that they got this but he said uh and i don't know exactly when this was but it was on air uh around the time that that stuff came to light uh that he said you know maybe i'm just you know been naive but i kind of really thought that you know they were separating them Uh, you know, but they were still saying like, well, you know, they're different than us, but we still have to treat them with some kind of respect or whatever, you know, and maybe I just, uh, and this is an instance where I just got to say, yeah, that is naive. Uh, people who tear children away from their parents were never, ever, ever going to treat them any better where we can't see them than what we have seen and what we have seen is terrorism and child rape uh and the edges of what is very likely uh, a network of human trafficking and <clears throat> If I'm wrong about any of that, uh, I will be happier than maybe I ever have been or could be to be wrong in my intuition and what I see around the edges of this thing. But I'm pretty sure, and I'm not the only person I've found who uh, sees it too. Like, they're not keeping these kids alive uh for any reason that does not benefit them and you can see it around the edges in homestead they uh when they toured the facility they saw you know like 30 people stacked in a room uh built for two men uh that had been left there for a month things like this but uh There were no teenage girls it was something someone said uh some florida congresswoman with like a sparkly cowboy hat you couldn't take her seriously with this uh but said on the news you know about like going around and seeing all this stuff and she said but where are all the teenage girls whatever the accent as well but she just was shaking her head and like, gosh, you know, and they, they just didn't say I didn't see them or something. And she didn't fucking realize what she's right on the edge of, but I would love to be wrong. I will never, ever in my life be happier to be wrong about something. Uh, but we're very, very close and the prisons are overflowing And they all pose a health crisis to people outside. So finally, uh, folks are getting the pressure to close down. You know, unnecessary, nonviolent, criminal. You know, uh, Rikers Island, and these other places, and you know the ice boxes are going to break soon. And along with this pandemic, we're already seeing a lot of people are going to be uh, taken entirely by surprise by this. And I hope that what I'm doing here can be some small public service in preparing the way and, you know, recording this before it all, Uh, comes out because uh, it is hideous and there need to be trials for war crimes and these crimes against children. Uh, And my heart is beating faster because I am so angry about this. And right next to me on the desk, I have... uh, Matzah and butter, just a simple, you know, thing to start the day, eat something, you know, start the day at 2.43, because time doesn't mean things anymore. And I was up till dawn, just doing what, you know, just cruising and everything. Uh, And I'm in the last minute, they'll let me record. So I'm gonna stitch this together with uh, the audio booking I did for The Red Death, which I hope you enjoyed. And I'm going to have a little uh, extra music that you will hear momentarily. <music>